Let's open our Bibles to Jonah chapter 3. Um, we're actually going to finish the book of Jonah today, so we're going to do Jonah chapter 3 and chapter 4. Sounds like a lot. It's not, not a lot of verses, but I consider it a profound accomplishment because I have never taught two chapters in one Sunday, so thank you, Jesus. We'll get out of here about 2.30, I think. <clears throat> I promise, no, not that long. Jonah chapter 3. Now, by way of introduction, I want to tell you what happened to, uh, to a gal and her husband uh, several years ago. It was April 29th. Uh, 1993. It was a Thursday uh, that year, and uh, the, there was a couple. They they served uh, with uh, Wycliffe Bible translators in Papua New Guinea, uh, which uh, we have uh, a uh, couple that went out uh, from our church, the Clovers. They're serving with Wycliffe Bible translators in Papua New Guinea uh, as well. So some of you maybe uh, support them. Brenda and I uh, personally we we support them, and um, we support them as a church. Uh, so they're there. Well, uh, this gal, her name's Grace, Grace Fabian, and her husband Edmund together. They're Wycliffe Bible translators, and they were working on translating the Bible into Nabok, which was the native tongue of one of the tribesmen's, uh, tribesmen there in Papua New Guinea where they were serving. And on this morning, this particular morning, uh, <clears throat> Edmund was translating 1 Corinthians 13. Here are the verses that he was translating. Though I speak with the tongue of men and angels, but have not love, I've become sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. The word love there in the Greek, it's the word agape, and it's speaking of an unconditional love, unmerited love. We prayed this morning, God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we're yet sinners, Christ died for us. We see the passion of the Christ. We hear the testament, the, the testimony of those eyewitnesses to Jesus' crucifixion, and we see that they spat in his face, that they put a crown of thorns on his head, that they beat him to a bloody pulp, that they whipped him with a cat of nine tails, ripping open his back and giving him those stripes. Uh, the Bible uh, saying, God saying through the prophet Isaiah that by his stripes we are healed. Uh, Jesus then being nailed to the cross, um, and where he would die the most horrific death known to mankind, the most uh, torturous death that they had ever devised. And then while he died, he was rocked, uh, mocked and ridiculed. Uh, and, um, and the whole time, Jesus could have, at any moment, could have called down legions of angels, could have wiped everybody out, out but God demonstrated his love. That while we were yet sinners, and we weren't there physically, but we, because we're all sinners by nature and by choice, all of us are guilty of the death of Jesus Christ, and while there were those mocking his death, we in our sin are guilty of the same thing. And so God demonstrating his love and that he, Jesus would say, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing, and he would die for us. That's unconditional love. And Paul here in 1 Corinthians 13 and uh, Edward, uh, Edmund Fabian and translating it, talking about this unconditional love of God. That if what I do, if it's not motivated by love, it's just like a clanging cymbal. It just has nothing beautiful about it. And I hear the gals singing and harmonizing it after that last song. It's beautiful. It's gorgeous. But our actions without love aren't like that. They're more like just a clanging cymbal that, that, that is not lovely at all. Paul continues, And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries... And all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains, but have not love, I'm nothing. 
And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, and have not love, it profits me nothing. What does love do? He says, love suffers long, it's kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself. It's not puffed up. It does not behave rudely. It does not seek its own. It's not provoked. It thinks no evil. It does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. And as Edmund translated these very words into the Nabok language, a Nabok tribesman crept into his house unnoticed, snuck up behind him, and buried an axe into his skull. And his wife, hearing a commotion from the other room, seeing somebody run past her window, went into her husband's office to find him slumped in his chair with the axe still in him and he very much dead. And and it's a tragic story and it gets even worse because although they found the man and although he was tried for a murder that he very clearly committed and the, the evidence was overwhelming, in a miscarriage of justice they acquitted this man. And I ask you to put yourself in Grace's shoes at that moment. What would be your reaction? What would be the condition of your heart? Frankly, I will tell you what the condition of my heart would be, what I would struggle with. In the movie The Untouchables, Elliot Ness has a sidekick, Officer Jimmy Malone. He's a Scottish police officer. And he gives Elliot Ness this counsel. He says, concerning the mob at that time, he says, if they put one of your men into the hospital, you put two of theirs into the morgue. And I'm like, yeah, I ascribe to Jimmy Malone's philosophy, absolutely. And that's what my flesh struggles with. How about you? Because I would like to be like Grace because what God did is he spoke to Grace and he told her to extend Grace to this man. To bake him a cake, to take it to him and to love him in Jesus' name and begin to share the gospel with him. And I think if it was me at that point, I would do what Jonah did, as we read about Jonah here, called to minister to his enemies, people that were very much as much brutal as this man, had lots of blood on their hands, very cruel people. And God told Jonah, go to the Ninevites, and Jonah said, nope, I'm with Pastor Ted, I'm out. Because we would like to fashion ourselves into, like, we read the story about grace, and we'd like to say, oh, yeah, I'd be gracious. She did, by the way, lead the man to Christ. The the book is called Outrageous Grace, and it is outrageous, isn't it, that God would call us to do that. makes no human sense. God calls Jonah to do this. Jonah says no. Jonah runs in the opposite direction. And God, because he's a good God, he chases Jonah down. Last week, we looked at that. We saw how Jonah running the opposite direction and seeing how God sends the wind to buffet the ship and to, to throw the, thing, the whole thing into turmoil and all the, the sailors freaking out, we're going to die. Jonah going, just throw me overboard, it's my fault, and you guys will be fine. And sure enough, they throw him overboard, they're fine. They receive, Christ, or they receive the Lord, they, they confess faith in the Lord. And <clears throat> Awesome for them. God prepares, because he loves him. Not only did he prepare this wind and send this wind, he prepared a fish. Sent the fish. The fish takes Jonah in. 
What's God doing in that moment? What's he doing in his love? He's chasing him, and what he's doing is he's providing for Jonah a window of opportunity. We looked at that last week. That God, because he loves us, he sends to us, well, he allows different storms, different whales, if it, as it were, to swallow us up. Because he's looking to redirect us, wants us to bring us to a place where we will yield to him, where we will repent uh, of our sin. And so sometimes God will send a medical whale, sometimes he'll send a financial whale, sometimes he'll send some sort of a relational whale, whatever it is, to arrest you where you're at and to turn you to where he wants you to be. And this is what happens with Jonah, and in the belly of the whale, Jonah cries, uncle, he says, fine, okay, have mercy on me, I'll do it. Whatever you want me to do, I'll do it. And this is where we pick up the story now, Jonah chapter 3, verse 1. It says, now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and preach to it the message that I will tell you. Now what we're going to see here as we go through this, in chapter 3, we're going to see two parallel stories. We're going to see the story of Jonah, and we're going to see the story of Nineveh. Both have rebelled against God. Both have resisted God. Both have been extended this window of opportunity by God to repent. And we're going to come back to Nineveh in just a minute, but we're going to start with Jonah. Tells us there in verse 1, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. In other words, listen, Jonah gets a do-over. How many of you have ever had God give you a do-over in life where you just messed something up and God was so gracious to you? Aren't you so grateful that we, we serve a God who loves us, that gives us a second chance? God is so gracious. He's so merciful to us. We do things that, that we blow it regularly. We, we rebel against the Lord, just a, just a bald-faced rebellion, deserving of death, deserving of judgment, deserving of hell, deserving of God saying, you're done. And he gives to us a second chance. And we have examples in the scriptures of this over and over again. I think of Jacob. Spent his whole life manipulating God. Always working the angles. Always just doing some sort of shyster thing to to, to get something worked out to his own advantage. Tricking people around him. And what happens is he finishes up in a place called Peniel. And there he's on the run from not only his father-in-law, but he's also on the run from his brother. Because he has swindled both of them. And so now Jacob on the run, and it was there that he wrestled with God. We have what's, what's known as a, a Christophany, which is a, an Old Testament appearing of Jesus Christ. The angel of the Lord appears to Jacob, wrestling with him, and he now wrestling this angel of the Lord. And in the middle of his wrestling with him, recognizing that this is you know, the Lord, and he says, I won't let you go until you bless me. Always working the angles, and now I'm wrestling with God. I'm on the run, but you know what, God? I'm not going to let you go until you bless me. And what does God do? God puts his hip out of socket. He maims him. And, and he's effectively saying to Jacob in that, listen, you want me to bless you? I'll tell you what, my blessing comes through brokenness. My blessing comes through humility. And God, because he, he loves us, he does this work of breaking Jacob And bringing him to the place to where he surrenders and depends upon him. He's the God of the second chance. 
He's the God of the third chance. He's the God of the fourth chance. I like the story about the prodigal son. I love the story of the prodigal son because I can so relate to it. Here you've got, you know, this, this kid and he, he gets his dad to give him his inheritance and he goes out and he squanders it. And, and in this, we've got this picture that I think all of us can identify with. It starts, it starts with this temptation to leave the father. And, you know, anytime you, you're tempted to leave the father and you do, in fact, then leave the father, what inevitably comes is failure and guilt and shame. And when we have that failure, when we have that guilt, when we have that shame, because we have left our Father, the Lord, in disobedience, what happens then is we're also tempted now to believe the lie. The, the enemy who comes to us and says, well, you've blown it now. You can't go back to God. And so we, we just you know, have this picture in the prodigal son and thank God, what does the prodigal son do? He goes back to the Father. And we see in that picture, what is the father doing? He's, he's not throwing the towel in on the, on the kid. He's not giving up on the kid. He's not written the kid off. He's watching for the kid's return every single day. And the father runs to him and throws his arms around him and kills the fatted calf for him and has just the biggest party because his son, who was lost, has come home. What's the key to the second chance? It's one word. It's repentance. Repentance means to turn means to turn from the direction you were going and to turn to the Lord. And so here in Jonah chapter 3, what we have is Jonah has repented and now the word of the Lord comes to him the second time and now the focus shifts to Nineveh. By the way, word of the Lord comes back to the Lord. He hasn't changed what he said. Sometimes, you know, our kids are rebellious. Sometimes they're disobedient and, they, and we bring them to a place where we break them and they come in tears and then we're tempted to go, oh, that's okay, you don't have to do it. No, no, God's like, I love you, so get on with it, man. Go, go what I told you to do, that. Go, the word of the Lord came to him, said, go to Nineveh, preach the message that, that, I, that I want you to give. Now, the focus shifts to Nineveh, and we continue verse 3. So Jonah arose, and he went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three-day journey in extent, and what this means is not that it, that it took him three days to get to Nineveh after the whale vomited him up on the shore. What it means is that once he got to Nineveh, it would take three days to go from one end of the city limits to the other end of the city limits. Huge city. And so, so he, he gets there. Verse 4, And Jonah began to enter the city on the first day's walk, and then he cried out, and he said, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be over." throne. Tell you what I love about this. Great picture of true repentance on Jonah's part. He told God he'd go. God says, fine. Whale vomited him up. There he is. And God says, now go. And he goes. And he doesn't, you know, wait any amount of time. He's, he's in the city. He set foot in the city. It's the first day of the journey. And he starts being obedient right away. Now, what we're going to discover is that Jonah, in his obedience, He's still not thrilled about the assignment. We're going to see that Jonah is still struggling within himself. And quite frankly, we need to understand that about repentance. Sometimes when we talk about repentance, it's just not, it, repentance isn't just indicated in issues of salvation and, and you know, unbelief and belief. And I need to repent and I need to be saved. You do need to do that and it does apply to that. 
But we as Christians, we also need to repent. We need to live lives where we repent of sin. And sometimes what God will do is he will convict you by his Holy Spirit that you are in sin and that you are in need of repentance and your emotions will want to say no. Husbands, wives, does it ring a bell? You ever been convicted by the Lord and the Lord tells you, you know what, go apologize to your husband. And you're like, I do not want to do that. But obedience, sometimes it's just a matter of, all right, my emotions aren't there, but I'm going to do this. I'm going to choose to do this. That's unconditional love. Bible says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. The word is agape. It's unconditional. It doesn't matter what you feel like. Go, humble yourself. Tell her you're wrong, because you probably are. And repent. And so Jonah goes. He's being obedient here, even though, as we'll see, his emotions are still going to struggle. They're still going to pop back up. He's still going to have to take every thought captive to the obedience of, of the Lord, of Christ, as we're exhorted in the, in the New Testament to do, which he will fail at, when you will fail at it. But hey, a righteous man falls seven times, but he gets back up again. You got to keep walking in that direction. And so there he is. He goes, first day's walk. He begins preaching, verse 4. And so the people of Nineveh, believed God, proclaimed a fast, and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. And then the word came to the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne and laid aside his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he caused it to be proclaimed and published throughout Nineveh by decree of the king and his nobles, saying, Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink water. Hey, men... Women, children, beast in the field, we're all doing this thing. He says, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily to God. Yes, let every one turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who can tell if God will turn and relent and turn away from his fierce anger so that we may not perish? And then God saw their works, that they turned from their evil way and God relented. From the disaster that he, uh, uh, that he had said he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. Now, this is the largest revival probably in the history of the world. We, we probably, we're going we're gonna to see, God's going to give us a number at the end of chapter 4 of, uh, of uh, 120,000 per, persons, but that probably just relates to children. Uh, yeah, very young children at that. And so this is probably upwards of a million people who have given their hearts to the Lord. The really crazy thing here is that this message, it's one sentence long. Jonah preaches a, a message of one sentence and a million people give their lives to the Lord. Now, I teach homiletics at the Bible College. Homiletics is the science and the art of biblical preaching. Can I just tell you, I don't have people turn to Jonah chapter 3 to see how to preach a message. It's not one sentence. But what makes it so effective, you see there, clearly stated in verse 2, God telling him up front, preach the message that I tell you to preach. That's what makes all the difference in the world. 
Yes, do your work. Yes, try and prepare. Yes, study the text. Yes, do everything you can to organize your thoughts in a cohesive way. But at the end of the day, it is either what God tells you to preach or it's going to have no effect. And Jonah clearly teaching what God wants him to teach. And this incredible, incredible outcome is the result. Jesus told his disciples, now when they bring you to the synagogues and magistrates and authorities, do not worry about what uh, or how you should answer or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. Listen, God doesn't need your ability. He needs your availability. He needs you to be available to him to say what he wants you to say when, you want, when he wants you to say it. And this whole, this big idea that we're going through as we look at Jonah, the, the, the title of the series, Hating the People That God Loves, and so often what we do is we do hate the people that God loves. We got issues with the lost. They make us upset. We have issues even with our brothers and sisters in Christ because we argue like, oh, that's an immature position and you're, you're doing things that are immature and so on, and we divide over all of these different issues and then we hate one another, and yet God is telling, no, telling Jonah here, I want you to go with my message to these people because I love them. And I want you in love to do that. He wants us in love to be willing to do that. Listen to what Paul said to the Romans. He said, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's what it's all about. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? How shall they believe in him of who they have not heard? And how shall they hear <coughs> without a preacher? And you say, well, well, there it is, a preacher, man. Go preach, preacher. Don't preach at me, go preach. No, 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 Here, here's the deal. That word preacher, it literally means one who proclaims. We're all called to proclaim the good news of Christ. Just open your mouth, go where he tells you to go, where you go, I'll go, where you move, I'll move. You know, Lord, I'm going to follow you, I'm going to do what you tell me to do. Go and show, man, show Jesus, tell him about Jesus. Now, how can we be sure that they, that they believed? How can we be sure that their repentance is true? Because this can become an issue for Jonah. Jonah's going to struggle deep down with, you know what, they're snowballing you, God. He's not going to say that, but his actions are going to prove that that's what's going on in his heart. When he sees this, this great you know, revival taking place here, we're going to see what goes down is that it, 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 Jonah's going to be real skeptical about this. So how can we look at what's happening and go, this is the real deal? Well, there's several things we see in their repentance. See, because true belief results in repentance. Repentance means to turn. It means a change in the direction in which you're going. It means doing something. And what do they do in their repentance? They fast, they put on sackcloth, they sit in ashes. Fasting is, a, is symbolic in this day and age of laying aside their fleshly appetites. Putting on sackcloth, this itchy, scratchy, uncomfortable garment, is symbolic of laying aside the earthly comforts, the things of the earth and the things of the world that would comfort us. Laying those aside for the sake of the Lord. Ashes, putting them upon you is symbolic of the, that, hey, you know what, all, everything in this world is worthless, God. It's worthless. It's all ashes. It's all going to burn. It's nothing compared to you. And they turned from their evil and their violent ways. There's a great sign of repentance. 
And the king lays aside his royal robe, this symbol of his own personal rule, his reign, his power, lays it aside. Now listen, if a person claims to believe in Jesus Christ, then there must be repentance. There must be a change that takes place in your life. I love what David Guzik said about this. He says, if repentance is anything, it is not business as usual. When repentance comes, something has to change. Something has to be different. And God says in verse 10, something is different. It says that he saw their works and that he relented what he was going to do. Now, there's a couple of things about that we need to dig into. First of all, he saw their works. Now, what this does not mean is that they earned their way to salvation. It's not like, oh, God saw their works and they did enough good works and their good works finally outweighed their bad works. And so now on the scale of things, okay, now I'm okay with you guys. That's not what he's saying here. It's not that they could earn their salvation here so much as what it is, is that they were earnest in their salvation. They were earnest in their salvation. This is the point that James makes in James chapter 2 when he says that faith without works is dead. The idea is that when you're born again, that God is going to come in and he's going to change your life. One of the things I like to do when I give an invitation to receive Christ, usually at the end of a message, and maybe you've heard me do this, but in the prayer and in the time of extending an invitation, as, as, we're just, you know, as I'm just exhorting the people in prayer, one of the things I'll point out is that, hey, you know, right now, you might be wrestling in your heart. About, you know, gosh, I, I, I want to raise my hand. I want to be saved. I want Jesus to forgive me of my sins. And I want to have the hope of eternal life. But, but I know me, and I know what I struggle with, and, I, and I'm not ready to give that up. I don't think I can give that up. But I, but I believe what you're saying, and I want that. But because I, because I know me, because I don't want to give that up, or because I don't, can't give that up, then, then I think it'd be hypocritical for me to raise my hand. And, and what I exhort people to do is, hey, listen, invite Christ to come into your heart. Ask Jesus to make you a new creation and let him change you. Let him change the desires of your heart. Jesus cleans his fish after he gets them in the boat, man. Just cry out to him honestly to say, Lord, I know that I need you. I know that I'm a sinner. I know I'm a piece of work, and I know I have these desires that don't honor you. God, I need you. Just do that. That's the, that's the idea here is that when we do that, then we invite Christ, and what he will do is he will do a transforming work. The Bible says if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things become new. And in that all things becoming new, you will become earnest in your salvation because you have been made new by Christ. You have a new nature. You've got the Holy Spirit now who's come to dwell in you and empower you to do the things that honor God. That doesn't mean that you're going to live a perfect life. It means you're going to live a life that is an ongoing life of of what we call sanctification, of spiritual renewal and regeneration. Spiritual renewal that God wants to do, this ongoing work. He who began a good work in you, the Bible says, will be faithful to complete it. And so they repented, they cried out, it's legit, God sees it. And again, verse 10 says there that that he relented from what he was going to do. Some of your translations, they say that God repented. And whether it's God relenting or God repenting, it's still, there's some questions that come from that. 
There's, there's some doubting maybe that that can cause for us to go, well, wait a minute, is he God or not? Did he know what's going to happen or not? Because he said through Jonah that he was going to destroy him. And now all of a sudden, what, he repents of that? Like, what, God can learn? To, he didn't know that? That was taking him by surprise? He was like, oh, wow, I, I didn't expect that. Told him, go tell them they're going to get judged. And now look, everybody's all repenting. Well, I guess I can't kill him now. I guess I ought to, well, okay. No, this isn't what's going on at all. It's what's known as an anthropomorphism. That's easy for me to say. Anthropomorphism. Now, what is that? An anthropomorphism is, is when we ascribe earthly characteristics to God. Just to, to describe God and, 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 and all, we're, we're at a loss for words when you're trying to describe God. So you, so you ascribe to him some human characteristics just in the, the process to try to help describe who he is and what he does. And this is one of those. And, and so it's not that God repented like you and I would repent. But, but the, the issue is, is hey, God knows what the outcome's going to be. But Jonah's preaching was, was, was just like all warnings of judgment. It was a call to repent and to avoid the consequences of disobedience. It was an appeal, listen, to the free will of mankind. God says this to the nation of Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 30. He says, I call heaven and earth as witnesses against you, today against you, that I have set before you life and death, blessings and cursings. Therefore, choose life that both you and your descendants may live. God is appealing to the free will of mankind. He's created you as a free moral agent. You can choose to accept him. You can choose to reject him. That continues, by the way, after you're born again. Yes, you're, you're a new creation. Yes, the Spirit of God dwells within you. But we then still are in the process of sanctification, in the process of spiritual regeneration, God making us this new creation, maturing us in Christ, and we still struggle with this issue of free will. Paul articulated this way. He said, that that I want to do, I don't do. That that I don't want to do, that's what I do. Who's going to save me from this body of death? And he says, thank God, Jesus is the one that's going to do that. And so what's going on here is, is God giving this message of judgment through Jonah and the people responding. The people uh, you know, making the choice to repent and to, to turn their life over to the Lord. Now the choice, the choice is ours too, by the way. God says, hey, you can repent or you can be overthrown. When he says here, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown, that word, it can mean a couple of different things. It can mean overthrown and overturned, which is certainly what would have happened to them if they had rejected the Lord, if they had rejected this preaching message. They would have been overthrown and, or overthrown and overturned. But it can also mean to turn and be changed or to be transformed. And that's what transpires in their life. The moment they repent, they're changed. They're transformed. God doing this renewing work. Now, God's not lying when he speaks through Jonah and gives the message, yet 40 days, and you're going to be overthrown. No, God is acting in, in absolute consistency with his word. Listen to what he said to Jeremiah, or through Jeremiah in Jeremiah 18. He said, the instant I speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom to pluck up or to pull down and to destroy it, if that nation against whom I have spoken turns from its evil, I, God says, will relent of the disaster that I thought to bring upon it. 
And so God says, look, I got the prerogative to do that. You're going to preach a message and you repent? I got the prerogative to say, okay, fine, I'm not going to judge you. Now, what's the difference between ruin and relenting? Repentance. Peter said this in Acts chapter 2. He's preaching the gospel. People are responding. They're cut to the heart. They say, what, what, what must we do to be saved? Here's what he says. He says, repent. Repent. Paul, he was appearing before King Agrippa. Again, he's teaching him uh, the, the gospel and his message to King Agrippa. Repent. Turn to God. Do works fitting of repentance. Message of John the Baptist. What did he say? Repent. The kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus, in Luke's gospel, Luke 13, he says, I tell you, unless you repent, you will all perish. That's the big thing. You want to sum up chapter 3 into one word? It's repent. Repentance for Noah. Repentance for Nineveh. And hey, let me ask you, does it mean repentance for you? Today, are you into something that you shouldn't be into? Is God calling you to repent? Is there something in your life that requires you to take a good long look in the mirror and a good long look in the mirror of God's word and say, God, have mercy on me. I'm a sinner. Maybe today you need to repent and receive Christ as your Lord and Savior. I'll give you an opportunity at the end of the message to do that. Maybe you, you say, gosh, that's, that's me. I, I'm the guy that has been hesitant to pray because I don't want to be a hypocrite, but I know that I need to be saved. You'll get that invitation. Maybe you're a Christian. You've been walking with the Lord for a long time, but you know that you need to repent today. And this would be a beautiful ending to the story right here. Wouldn't it be awesome? Wouldn't it be great if the book of Jonah just ended? Hey, you know what? Jonah repented, went and did what God wanted him to do, and look, Nineveh repented, and a million people saved, and they all lived happily ever after. But, chapter 4, verse 1, it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he became very angry. That's an odd thing. Dude preaches a message, a million people get saved, and he gets ticked off. Now, the Bible's not given to exaggeration. When it says he became exceedingly angry, this dude went postal. He's upset. My daughter... Caitlin was telling me the other day, she and, and Zach are driving home, and, and a couple of guys in a car, they, they were like yelling at each other, and one guy gets out, and she's like, what is going on here? And, and starts to confront this other person, and then that guy gets out. Now, he's a little bigger than the guy had counted on, but he's committed now, so pretty soon, they end up going to blows in the middle of the street. It's like, holy moly, talk about road rage. Well, Jonah's got some road rage going on here. It displeased him, Jonah exceedingly, and he became angry. And so he prayed to the Lord and he said, Oh, Lord, was this not what I said when I was still in my country? Therefore, I fled previously to Tarshish, for I know that you're a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, one who relents from doing harm. He's saying to God, this is why I told you no in the first place and ran in the opposite direction because I know you're a softy and you're going to have mercy on them and you're going to forgive them. And it's like, I didn't want nothing to do with that because I hate them. Therefore, verse 3, he says, Now, O Lord, please take my life from me for it's better for me to live than to, or to die than to live. Dude, you just preached a message. A million people got, got saved. What do you think? I wish I was dead. That's what I think. Whoa, man, hate much. 
Wow. In Luke's gospel, Jesus tells a story. It's a parable, earthly story with a heavenly meaning. And it's about a guy that's got a hundred sheep, and he loses one of them. Now, you might think, well, I still got 99. That's cool. No, this guy is heartbroken over losing the one sheep. All he can think about is the one sheep that he's lost. And so this, this sheep, this poor sheep's gone out into the wilderness somewhere, and he leaves the 99. He doesn't abandon them. He leaves them, you know, protected with somebody else. That's the idea there. He goes out looking and searching for the one. And he finds that one sheep, and he brings it back, and he's just ecstatic. He calls up all his neighbors and friends. He's posting on Facebook. He's doing, you know, little hashtags, sheep has been found. It's like, yeah, everybody, my sheep has been found. I'm so happy, you know. And, and the parable is this metaphor for how God feels about his lost sheep about those that wander off into the wilderness and how his heart breaks for them. Here's how Jesus finishes the parable. He says, I say to you that likewise there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 just persons who need no repentance. Can you imagine with Jesus' description there what must be going on in heaven right now? A million people in Nineveh have repented. Can you imagine how that pleases the heart of God? But Jonah... Man, he doesn't feel that way. What happened to his repentance? Well, he was, he was repentant and he was obedient, but he's still struggling with these emotions, man. You guys know what this is like. You've, done, you've dealt with this. You're angry, you're upset, you feel some way about someone, but God convicts you and you go, okay, fine, 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 fine. I'm not going to judge. I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm going to be cool. But then something happens, and then God is like blessing, and you're like, oh, I just hate that. And your flesh just comes rearing up, and this is what's going on. And so God calls him on it. Verse 4, then the Lord said, is it right for you to be angry? Don't you hate when God says that to you? He says, is it right for you to be angry? Now, at this point, let me just fast forward in, in your life. And put you there, 3,000 years or so, forward in time. God saying then, is it right, Jonah, for you to be angry? Now let me have God ask us the same question. Is it right for you to be angry? Last time I taught through this, many years ago, I I said, you know, right next to verse 4, I want you to write the name of somebody, or maybe it's several names of somebody that that you're struggling with, somebody that you're very angry with. I've got names written in chapter 4 in the margin of my Bible. No, you cannot buy, borrow my Bible later on. But people that I, that I have struggled with and, and, and all, and we need to, to ask this question, who's the person that's on my list today? The person that God loves, but I hate. Or the people group that God loves, and I hate. Who is it? See, Paul, in the very words that Edmund Fabian penned the moment he was murdered, said, love believes all things. It hopes all things. It endures all things. Love never fails. And we all know the parable that Jesus told in Matthew 18, right, about forgiveness. Jesus tells this story about this, this, this duty. He, he owes this debt to this king. And it's like four lifetimes of debt. He could never repay it if he lived four lifetimes. And, and so what happens? The king says, you owe me this, and I'm going to throw you in prison until you can pay it back. 
And the guy begs the king, oh, please, please, have mercy on me. You guys know the story, right? He says, okay, I'm going to forgive you. Your debt's wiped away. The guy can't even get home. And he bumps into a guy who owes him like the equivalent of a couple hundred bucks. What's his reaction to him? Well, I'm going to throw you in jail, dude. You owe me money. That guy does the same thing. Please, 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 let me, let me pay you back. Now, he actually has the ability to pay this guy back. Just give me a little time, I'll pay you back, man. Won't have it. Has him thrown in prison, and the king finds out about it, loses his lid, says, that's the way you want it to be? Fine. You'll go to jail too. Here's how Jesus ended that parable. He says, then the angry king sent the man to prison to be tortured until he had paid his entire debt. That word tortured, literally it means torturous jailer. And it's a picture for us of what unforgiveness does. It, 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 it imprisons us, it puts us in, in prison, and it tortures us while we're there. This is the picture. Listen, some of you need to hear this today because you're imprisoned in your own anger. It's been said that no matter how long you nurse a grudge, it's never going to get better. It's been said holding on to unforgiveness is like taking poison to get even with the person that you're angry with. Not too long ago, there was an article in the American Medical Journal. They were talking about the physiological effects of anger, what it does to you physically. They said, among other things, it causes migraines, it causes digestion problems, sleep disorders, stomach ulcers, increased anxiety, causes depression, causes high blood pressure, heart attack, and stroke. How's that working out for you? Hanging on to bitterness, anger, unforgiveness. And that doesn't even mention the damage it does in our homes, in our relationships, and so on. And so God asked Jonah, he goes, hey, is it right that you're copping this attitude? Is it right for you to be acting this way? And notice what, notice what Jonah says. What's Jonah say? Not a word. Not a word. He just remains cooking in his anger. Absolute silence. Look, he's not even going to consider the fact that he's wrong. You know, guys, sometimes your wife says something, and she's right, and you know she's right, and so you're like, ugh, and you just don't, I'm just not going to say anything. You know, you just won't answer them. They go, well, what about this? And you're like, and then you're just silent. No, no, this isn't that situation. Jonah's silent because he thinks he's right. That's a really dangerous place to be. Listen, instead of hearing what God wanted to say, Jonah began looking for he, what he wanted to see. He's not hearing what God wants to say. He's looking for what he wants to see. And so what is he looking for? Well, verse 5. So Jonah went out of the city, and he sat on the east side of the city, and there he made himself a shelter, and he sat under it in the shade till he might see what would become of the city. What's he doing? He is parked out looking for God's mistake to be revealed. God, you made the mistake of being merciful and forgiving to these people, but I know who they really are, and I'm going to camp out right here, and I got my eye on you, baby. And, hey, your Facebook stalking that person, looking at their Twitter feed, whatever it is, because they haven't unfriended you yet, and you're just there, and you're like, well, what the heck? Look at that guy. Can you believe? And it's just all you're you're watching. It's just because you know what a horrible person they are. And you have no intention of believing all things, hoping all things, enduring all things, trusting that God loves them, has their number, and so on. No, 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 you're going to set up shop, you're going to set up camp, and you're going to be looking for what you want to see, not for what God wants to say. 
Well, a friend of mine posted on Facebook recently. Is a, it was one of those quote captions, and it said this. It said, don't use the bathroom in your dream. It's a setup. <laughs> Just let that sink in for a minute. <laughs> don't use the bathroom in your dream. It's a setup. Well, listen, God is setting Jonah up here. How so? Well, Jonah thinks the Ninevites' repentance isn't real or that it won't last or that God's made a mistake, whatever it is. And so he gives himself this ringside seat. And and there, as he's got this ringside seat, God gives him a nice shady little place to wait in. That's the setup. Gives him this nice little shady place. What you need to stop and understand is that God right now has given you a nice shady little place to sit in. Listen to what the psalmist said. Psalm 63, 7, because you have been my help, David says, therefore in the shadow of your wings, I will rejoice. All of us live in the shadow of God's wings. And if you're a child of God and if you're sitting in the shade that he's provided, you just need to take that into consideration when you want to sit and cast judgment and, and, and all as this guy is doing it. Like the man in Jesus' parable, you've been extended a debt that you could never repay. You've been forgiven of that debt in the person and the work of Christ. And so now you're going to enjoy this this forgiveness that God's given to you. The covering of your sins while you watch for the destruction of somebody who sinned against you. And so verse 7, as morning dawned the next day, here's the setup. God prepared a worm. He prepared this vine to grow up and cover him. And now God prepared a worm. And it so damaged the plant that it withered. And it happened when the sun arose that God prepared a vehement wind, east wind. And the sun beat on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. And then he wished death for himself. And he said, it's better for me to die than to live. A few weeks ago, remember when it was a million degrees here? Uh, and Brenda was baking something, and she turned on the, the oven uh, to like, you know, a million degrees, whatever it was, and, I th- and, and I'm like, you know, oh, I, I want this, I'm glad she's cooking, but our poor air conditioner can't even keep up with the heat outside. This thing's just going to actually push it right over the edge, and it did, you know, it's just you got that, all that heat radiant. Well, God's doing that. This is like bacon. He, he, he gives him this, this not not bacon, like, you know, and I'm hungry. But, you know, he's baking in the sun there, and he prepares this thing. And, and God says, now I'm going to prepare a worm to eat this thing so that that goes away. Now I'm going to cook you, and now I'm going to turn the blow dryer on you, and now it's going to come and just make it all. That's what's going on here. And Jonah's like, this is overwhelming me. Verse 9, and then God said to Noah, is it, or Jonah, thank you, not Noah. Then God said to Jonah, Is it right for you to be angry about the plant? And he said, it is right for me to be angry even unto death. (laughs) Now look, this looks like punishment on God's part, but listen, it's really preparation. God prepared a fish, you remember back in chapter 1. And here now, three times in a row, chapter 4, we see that he's prepared something else. He prepared a plant, he prepared a worm, he prepared a wind... What's he doing? That word prepared literally means to ordain or appoint. And what's he doing? He's ordained and appointed these things. 
For what purpose? Well, verse 10 is, here's the trap. But the Lord said, you've had pity on the plant for which you've not labored, nor made it grow, which came up in a night and perished in, in a night. And should I not have pity upon Nineveh, that great city in which are more than 120,000 persons who cannot discern between their right hand and their left and much livestock? Look, there's all these people in Nineveh that are dying. There's 120,000 plus babies, innocent babies, that are, that are going to die in their sins. And you're more concerned with a plant that you had nothing to do with, that comes up in a day and is gone in a day, you're more concerned about that than you are all of these people that are going to hell. And that's where the movie ends. Ends right there. Brendan and I were watching a movie last week or a couple of weeks ago, and just right in the middle of it, it's like nothing's resolved, and then all of a sudden, black screen, and the credits start rolling. And I'm like, what, what the heck was that? was angry. We had spent money to watch this thing. Then, and, and as I read Jonah, it's like the end of chapter 3. That's where the movie should end. And they all lived happily ever after. But no, we get to chapter 4, and you've got this huge unresolved. And God says to, to, to Jonah, should I, should I not have pity on them? So you're going to be all angry about this? Shouldn't I have pity on them? And what, what's Jonah's response? Black screen and credits. What's your response going to be? That's the takeaway. We've got this beautiful picture of repentance in chapter 3, and chapter 4 is all about this forgiveness and allowing God to do what he's going to do and caring about the lost and not hating the people that God loves. And so we're left with this question. What are we going to do?